All right, everyone, as you're finding your seats, go ahead and grab your growth guide so you can follow along. Welcome to those of you that are watching online or listening later. Welcome to Cornerstone. I'm Pastor Brian Foreman, where we want to equip and inspire you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Just a reminder to check in. Let us know who you are so that we can be praying for you and so that we can stay in touch with you and resource you as you walk with Jesus. So today we are starting a new series, and the new series is on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous teachings in all of human history, the largest block of Jesus' teaching that's consolidated in one place in the New Testament, and we're going to be working through it together. Today I'm going to start with an overview, and it's called The Indispensable Jesus, and I gave it a super long subtitle, but I really like it, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, how Jesus lifts our guilt and evaluates our ethics without excusing our sins or adding to our burden. He lifts our guilt, evaluates, it elevates our ethics without excusing our sins or adding to our burden. And as I was looking through this and preparing for this and looking at the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount, it um, it really struck me that that the purpose, uh, if you understand part of what Jesus' intent was in this, I believe, then it can free you from two of the most uh, irritating, dangerous, insidious aspects of religious practice. And the question that we're going to answer today is this one: How can I free my faith of guilt? And frustration, free my faith of guilt and frustration. There are a couple different ways that that people go wrong in their faith. One is that they realize that they have blown it. All of us have blown it from time to time. We don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. So we have a appropriate sense of guilt when that is the case. But the problem is that guilt keeps us from our loving heavenly father and keeps us from recognizing or receiving or accepting the fact that he has made a way for our guilt to be removed, for our sins to be forgiven, for our debt to be paid. Now, another aspect of this is that in order to deal with guilt, sometimes we use guilt as an excuse for not drawing to our heavenly father Another thing that sometimes people do, especially religious people, in order to alleviate that sense of guilt is they fall into the trap of legalism. Now, legalism is coming up with a list of things that you're going to do, and if you do those things, then you're good with God. And the problem with that is that that, that list, you're, you're going you're gonna to cross things off of that list. I mean, you're not going to always stick to that list. So you can either fall back into the guilt or you start acting like you don't have any guilt, like you don't have a problem. You adjust the list or you hide your behaviors or you adjust your behaviors in such a way that you are always measuring up. There's another word for that. It's a word that we sometimes use around church. You may have heard it before. It's not a particularly church word. It's called pride, right? Pride is when you say, I'm doing really well. I'm like like those people. I do this, this, and this. I certainly don't do this, this, and this. 
And of course, that's a very attractive part of a religious person. Whenever you encounter somebody like that who is holier than thou, that's always got it all together, don't you just want to hang out with them? Don't you just want to be their buds? Don't you just want to be friends with them? No, of course not. Exactly. It's repulsive when it's like that. Or another fault that people fall into is they see the high standard that God calls them to, and they really are attracted to it, and they are drawn to it, and they want to do that. And so they try, and they try to do all the things that they feel like God wants them to do, but inevitably it leads to frustration because we just don't measure up. And if you got the sense that the only way you're going to make it, the only way you're going to be accepted among this circle and among God's family is if you are constantly always measuring up, always doing the right thing, never allowed to fail, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to be exasperated, and you'll probably give up as well. And I know, because I talk to people, that, that some of you, that's, that's your story. You know, so want any, any one of those aspects of it. And the thing that I love about Jesus as a whole, and in particular, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, is that it frees us from all of those spiritual pathologies. It makes a way for us to face up to our guilt without despair, to elevate our standards and our ethics without that constant sense of failure and to live in such a way that it is both authentic and attractive and freeing. And that's what I want for me and that's what I want for you as my brothers and sisters, as my friends. So what we're really talking about today is the idea of freedom. What is it going to take to set us free from that guilt and frustration and despair that we sometimes feel in our faith. And the bottom line is that we need Jesus, that, that Jesus himself is the actual solution to all of those issues. And I believe in the Sermon on the Mount, he was laying out a, a, a program, a plan, a perspective that would eventually, if you, if you follow it, would free you from all of those things. And uh, Jesus is needed. He is the indispensable aspect of our faith. And we'll look at it in three different ways. Again, don't try to write these down. We'll come back to them, but I just want to give you the overview that Jesus, number one in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see him as the promised, promised prophet like Moses. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is demonstrating our need for a savior. I think a lot of people miss this when they read through the Sermon on the Mount. He is pointing people to their need for a savior. And lastly, Jesus is demonstrating our need for his power. You can't live the Christian life without Christ. And I think that's a point that he is making in this passage. And so uh, at the end, I always like to give you a next step that will be practical and helpful and beneficial. And so I'm going to tell you about a playlist. It's kind of like a little devotional that you can do. And I'm going to ask you to watch and listen to the Sermon on the Mount weekly playlist. I think some of you already are because uh, I've heard about this. So here's what I'm going to do for the scripture today. I'm going to give you a little insight, a little picture of the first Sermon on the Mount, which is actually God 
speaking to Moses. And as I read this, we're not going to go into this passage in detail, but I want you to be listening. I want you to be watching for the kind of a compare and contrast. What are the similarities that we're going to see between this passage where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law and Jesus going up on a mountain to teach his disciples? Look for the, for the things that are similar and for the things that are different because I think that'll give you insight as we look at this passage, the extended passage of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at the first Sermon on the Mount. We'll see from that in Exodus chapter 24, uh, verses 12 to 18. Again, this is after the people of Israel have been delivered from their slavery in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness and God is revealing his covenant to them through Moses. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain Stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Moses told the elders, stay here and wait for us until we come back. Aaron and her are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I'm gone, consult with them. Then Moses climbed up the mountain And the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain forty days. And 40 nights. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, you know the situation of every heart, the status of every heart, watching, listening, here with us today. You know the needs they came in with, the questions that they have, the struggles that are sometimes very apparent and sometimes hidden. And Lord, we pray that you would meet those needs correction where correction is needed, direction where direction is sought, uh, repentance, conviction, encouragement, hope. Whatever the needs are that have walked in here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would meet us there. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would hear and obey and follow you wholeheartedly in everything and in every way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so again, bottom line, Jesus is pointing us towards his need, our need for us in the Sermon on the Mount. We need Jesus. And it starts out with this parallelism about Jesus is the promised prophet like Moses. So let me give you a little context of what, about what we're talking about here. In that passage that we just read, we saw Moses. We see the Lord saying to him, come up to me on the mountain. So we have Moses coming up the mountain to meet with 
with the Lord. And it says, stay there and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So what's happening? He, as Moses, as a representative of the people, is going up the mountain. He's going to meet with God on the mountain. He is going to receive from God instructions, which is another word that you could translate Torah. Torah, instruction, law. It's the commands and instructions that are going to guide the people in this new way of life. Because what's happened here? They have been in slavery for 400 years, perhaps thinking that God has forgotten about them. There were all these promises to their ancestors, but none of those promises have come true yet. And instead, they are an oppressed people enslaved in this land. But God shows up to Moses on, on the mountain in the fiery bush, and he says, I have heard my people. I have not forgotten them, and I'm going to come down, and I'm going to do something. So you go to the people, and Moses goes, and he tells them about this, and God performs all these miraculous signs. The people escape from Egypt, and they're now there. They have been created into a new people, and God's going to give them the instruction, their direction. This is, this is how you do things in this new world among this people. And then we see a parallel in the book of Matthew. At Matthew chapter five, verses one to two, it's introducing the Sermon on the Mount. It says, one day as he saw the crowds, he being Jesus, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. Now, this was the way that rabbis, instructors, teachers, discipled or taught or apprenticed their disciples. They, (coughs) excuse me. They would sit down. That was the position of authority. When the rabbi was going to teach, he would sit down. They go up into the mountains in the hill country of Galilee, most likely. And the the disciples follow him. Now, who are the people that are with Jesus? And in what setting is he? Well, he's in this land. And for the last 400 years, there has been a silence from heaven. The, the Old Testament canon of scripture has closed. The God, God doesn't seem to be sending any prophets anymore. All of these promises about the restoration of their people and their return to their glory days seem to be nowhere to be found. And in fact, they are a people that is oppressed. The Roman government, the Roman empire has come in and taken over. And so they're wondering, you know, is God ever going to come through? Is God going to answer our prayers? Is he going to remember his promises? And then Jesus shows up and he gathers these followers and he invites them. He climbs up a mountain and the, and the followers come with him and he sits down to teach them and he's going to give them their new law. 
the instruction for how this new people is going to be formed and what God is doing. The whole book of Matthew, remember there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them have a different distinctive. The gospel of Matthew is written primarily to Jewish believers, to Jews, in order to show them their need for and understand Jesus' place in their history. It's The book of Matthew is split into five different uh, major sections just like the Old Testament Torah is split into five different books. And here we have the people going up, following Jesus up a mountain to meet with their God, to hear his law and to see him form a new people around his instructions. Kind of an interesting parallel. Now, so, so what Jesus is doing and what Matthew is showing is that Jesus is this prophet like Moses. Now, what are we talking about here? Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there is this promise. Moses is getting ready to exit scene right. And it says, the Lord your God, he's telling the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Well, now, what's a, what's a prophet like me? Someone who speaks to God on your behalf, someone who intercedes, who acts as a bridge between you as the people and God in heaven. There's going somebody who will give you the instructions of God, will interpret the instructions of God, will teach you, will help to form you into this new people. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And so since that time, since the beginning of the people uh, being formed into this new nation, they have been looking for another Moses, Another prophet that will speak to God on their behalf and speak from God to them. And there was this promise. There was the promise of this. There was the promise of a Messiah. There was a promise of the prophet like Elijah that would come and prepare the way, a branch from the root of Jesse, all these different kinds of prophecies. And so at this time, in Jesus' time, they were looking for the fulfillment of these promises. And so you can see this very clearly in the scriptures when John the Baptist came on the scene, for example. They were wondering, okay, who are who is this guy who's showing up and you know he's acting kind of weird and preaching kind of strange and doing baptisms, which is kind of different, but different practice than what we've done before. And so they're they're in essence saying, Who are you? Why why are you doing these things and why should we listen to you? This is in John chapter one. Jews from Jerusalem sent a group of priests and officials to ask John who he was. And it says he was completely honest because there was probably some speculation at that time that John the Baptist was the Messiah they were looking for. And in the beginning of John's gospel, he's making sure, and John is a different John, that's John the Evangelist, John the Baptist. Uh, the author of the Gospel of John is making sure that people know John himself never claimed to be the Messiah. So it says he didn't evade the question, he told the plain truth I am not the Messiah. Don't be confused. So they ask him, well, who then? Who are you? Are you Elijah? Remember, there was this prophecy that Elijah would show up before the Messiah. He said, nope, I'm not that guy either. Are you the prophet? What prophet? You see, they were looking for that promised prophet like 
Moses? This is the question they're asking him. Are you, are you the prophet like Moses that's been promised? And he says, nope, that's not me either. They were looking for it. And after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the apostles and the church recognized Jesus is all of those things wrapped up into one. He's the branch from the root of Jesse. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet like Moses. He, he, he was the one who was promised. And so Peter, when he's preaching in the early chapters of Acts, says, but God was fulfilling all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah. And then what does he go on and say next? He's the prophet like Moses. He's, he's all those things. So that's, that's what they were looking for, and that's what they found. And so what is this prophet like Moses? Well, again, reflecting on this much later, Paul writes to Timothy, there, not just this specific thing, but Jesus' role, there is one God and one mediator, one go-between, one person who represents us before God, one person who represents God to us. And he's the one who can reconcile God and humanity. Who is that? The man, Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is indispensable. Jesus is that prophet like Moses. And in the Gospel of Matthew, as he is ascending the mountain, drawing in all of those parallels and prophecies and promises from Israel's history, saying, here it is. Here's what you've been looking for. Here's the one you've been waiting for. And so just as a reminder, this is still relevant to us today. We need Jesus. He is the indispensable mediator between God and man. And that's why our first next step, if you're going to be uh, connecting with Cornerstone, we're always going to be encouraging you. Make sure that you've solved this, settled this, answered this question. Have you said yes to Jesus as Savior, the one who forgives your sins, to say, what you did on the cross, Lord, I want that to count for me. And also as Lord, he's the boss, he's the king. He's the one who's communicating God's word and God's will to us. And so we follow him. We need Jesus. So Jesus is that prophet, the promised prophet, like Moses. But this is interesting, and I think this is the thing that a lot of people miss. Jesus is demonstrating our need for a savior. Throughout the entirety of this sermon, I think he's pointing people to their need for a savior. He's dismantling their pride and making it impossible for them to not see their need. Now this starts, the the main message that Jesus uh, is preaching is shown to us in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, From then on, from the start of his ministry, basically, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is central to everything that Jesus is teaching. That is his message. The kingdom of God is showing up. So what should you do? You should turn 
from your sins and turn to God. You were going in one direction and now I want you to change direction. In order to be included in God's kingdom, this is how you do it. And he presents himself as the indispensable bridge to the kingdom of God. Now we see this in the sermon itself. Towards the end, as Jesus is wrapping it up, this is one of the things that he says, but I warn you, or actually this is earlier, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, better than the most religious people of their day, better than the most observant of the observant Jews, better than the ones who were constantly committing themselves to learning God's law, teaching God's law, encouraging other people to follow God's law, and following it to the best of their ability to the letter, it says, you got to do better than that. Or else what? Well, well you know, number one, they would say, there's no way that's going to happen because th- that wasn't the average person. And then they said, well, okay, well, what's going to happen? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the standard of righteousness, you pick the people that have set the bar the highest of the, mo- of the people you know, And unless you can jump higher than that, you're never, ever going to make it. They would have despaired. They would have been frustrated. They would have, well, how is there hope for anyone? How is there hope for anyone? And so right after this passage, he goes on and he says, and you've heard this before, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he, after the, you've heard it said, he would give an, uh, an example from the law. Don't murder, for example. Uh, and they knew, okay? One of the big 10, that's the 10 commandments. You don't do that. And people could say, good, I feel good about myself. I've never murdered. Some of them could say that. Maybe some couldn't. But then he says, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, if you condemn, you name call, you uh, call your brother a fool, then you are in danger of the fires of hell. You're, you're not safe just because you haven't committed murder because you murder, murder begins in the heart. And so he does the same thing with adultery and murder and all of these different things where they were feeling like, oh, okay, I'm doing good. And he's showing them, no, you don't even come close. You're just as guilty as everyone else. What is he doing? He's dismantling religious pride because that's what we do, right? We say, okay, what are the things we have to do in order to be a good person? Well, you don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You do this, you do this, you do this. All right, I feel good about myself. I can walk into church with my head held high. And he's like, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't get it. And uh, righteousness goes far deeper than that. And what is he doing? He's constantly dismantling their pride, dismantling their sense of self-righteousness and showing us our need for forgiveness. Now, we don't get the whole picture in the Sermon on the Mount because his death, burial, and resurrection is still to come, but we get hints of it. And in fact, in the, the center, the, the, the philosophical core in the, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, this is one of the lines. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. I, I like the idea that forgiven people forgive others. 
Self-righteous people are always condemning others because they don't meet up to the standard they think that they've met up to, right? But forgiven people are always forgiving others. They realize that they've been forgiven and so they extend forgiveness to others as well. And this is what Jesus is calling for. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And of course, we'll see how it all comes together in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But throughout, he's pointing to the need for a savior. But lest we get this confused, we need Jesus. Jesus is that promised mediator, the prophet like Moses. And he is also demonstrating our need for a savior. But he is also demonstrating our need for his power because it doesn't stop with just showing us our need for forgiveness, dismantling our self-righteousness. It's also elevating our ethic because he's saying your your ethic is in essence too low is what he's saying. You're saying if you just don't do these letter of the law types, types of things, then you're okay. And he's saying the kingdom ethic is actually much stronger, much higher, much more powerful than that. And he's calling us up to it. Uh, think about this. Remember, Moses goes up the mountain to receive God's instructions so that he can teach it to others. The disciples go with Jesus to meet with him on the mountain. They receive his instruction. And then as he's leaving earth after his death, burial, and resurrection, what does he say? He gives them the great commission. Have you ever noticed this before? Teaching is a part of it. So I've highlighted this a little bit differently. The key verb here is make disciples. Everything else is built around that. And it says literally, as you are going, in other words, you're living your life, you're following Jesus, this is what you do. You make disciples, go as you're going. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all languages. That's the idea of that. Baptizing them. You're going, but you're also baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How's that? How's that? Well, baptism is that celebration of our entrance into the faith. When a person says yes to Jesus, to his forgiveness as Savior, to his Lordship, he gets to call the shots. Then the first step of obedience is baptism, showing that you have entered into the family of God, are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then the third Third participle is teaching them, teaching them. That's a part of what making disciples is, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. What's he saying there? Part of it is you just don't start on this journey, you keep going. Moses was given the instruction to teach others. Jesus brings the disciples up on the mountain, gives the instruction, and then before he leaves says, this is part of your job teaching them to observe, not just to know, not just to give mental assent to, that would be a nice idea, but to observe everything I have commanded you. So lest you think it's just pointing out your guilt and your need for a savior, remember that he is calling us to live as a different kind of people with a different ethic and to live it out, not just know it not just show that we sometimes don't meet up to it. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter seven. This is towards the conclusion of the passage of the sermon. It says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, recognizing you are Lord, recognizing you have the right to call the shots in my life, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do 
the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And I think this is the part that I feel most passionately about. It parallels with what we were talking about last week when it comes to our citizenship, when it comes to our interpreting the events of this world. Can we please, let's do everything we can to live in such a way that we honor Christ and not dishonor him. So that when people see us, they see us as a people of integrity. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to get it right all the time. We're going to blow it. But Jesus is calling us to a different way of valuing and a different way of living. And if you are saying, I follow Jesus, it's not optional. It's, it's who we are as a people. We are supposed to live differently, value differently, think differently, and therefore live differently. And Jesus is making that very clear. This is, in essence, his manifesto. This is how the kingdom of God works. If you want to be a part of it, great. This is how it works. So we have a responsibility not to adopt our values, our our mores, our view of the world from anything we see outside, in school, on TV, among friends or family. Jesus is our source. He is that prophet like Moses. We should listen to him and actually do what he says. So we have a responsibility. And as we go through this, it's going to challenge us. The very first thing Jesus does in the Beatitudes, we'll hopefully talk about this next week, is he challenges their values about what it means to be blessed and what it means to be cursed, what it means to have God on your side and what it means and what it looks like when God is opposed to you and he flips the values of his day on their their head. He totally recalculates their value system. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he's probably going to do the same thing to you. And that's how it works in the kingdom of God. But why does he do that? In part, I think, because he's a loving, heavenly father. And when, he, when we say following Jesus makes life better, makes you better at life, I don't think that's just a catchy saying. I think that's God's heart as a good, good father for his people. And, and I think you see this in the very next passage after this. He sums it up with the parable of the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. Look at what it says. These are just two verses from that. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it, does what I say, listens, truly listens, is wise. Like a person who builds his house on a rock. And then in contrast, the person who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds his house on the sand. Now, We'll look at this more in depth when we get to it, but, but what is different among these two? They both hear, and they both encounter the storms of life. Following Jesus is not a get-out-of-trouble-free card of life. It says the rain came, the floods came, the wind beat against that house, the one that was built on the sand and the one that was built on the rock. That kind of stuff is going to come. The difference is that one heard and did something with it, one heard and did nothing with it, one house stood, the other fell. God, I think, wants your house to stand. 
That's his heart for you, is that when the storms come, you'll be able to withstand them. And Jesus is lifting our ethic, telling us to value things differently so that we can live out his kingdom with authenticity and with integrity and be a beacon to the world. You can, you can, you can weather the storms of life. Follow me. Do what I say and you will experience that kind of grace that allows you to make it through the storms of life. So today, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about freedom. Jesus is indispensable. We need Jesus. We need that prophet like Moses. It's the only way that we can enter into the kingdom of God. He shows us our need for a savior. He dismantles that religious pride and instead replaces it with humility as he extends forgiveness. When we are forgiven, we forgive others. And he also demonstrates our need for his power. He calls us to that higher ethic, but we can't do it without him. The only person that can live the Christian life is Christ. And as a follower of Jesus, his power is residing in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you can live out the ethic that Jesus is calling us to live. That's why I emphasize that idea of saying yes to Jesus. You can't be a part of the kingdom. You can't live out the kingdom values without Christ living and residing in you. And that happens when you say yes to Jesus. So that's, that's the bottom line application. Make sure that that is settled. Now, if you have settled that, here's a way that you can continue to make progress and grow. I mentioned this at the beginning, a weekly playlist. The Bible Project is, as they have a focus each year in their uh, app, and the, the focus this year is on the Sermon on the Mount. So every week they publish a new playlist that's reading and videos and uh, something to listen to. It doesn't take long to work through it. Most of you could do it in one sitting very easily and it's very engaging. So I'm going to challenge you, encourage you to go to that playlist. It's linked at cornerstonenh.org slash sermon playlist. That'll take you to the Bible Project website. You sign up for it there. They'll send you reminders and links. You can download the app so that it's always there, always accessible. Let's begin a journey of walking with Jesus through his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Allow him to speak to us about our need. Allow him to elevate our ethic to a kingdom of God ethic so that we can live the life that he intended for us and bring glory to him in the process. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a good and loving Heavenly Father, and thank you, Lord, for this teaching, which is so transformational, so beneficial. And Lord, we thank you most of all for Jesus, for making a way that we could be restored to the family of God, for our sins to be forgiven, for the end of our story to be rewritten. Lord, I pray that you would be with us on our journey, that you would show each of us exactly how this message hits for us personally in our lives, and then give us the power that you provide to live it out, to change our ways, to repent of our sins, to turn towards God so that we might be wholehearted, completely committed, 
people of integrity and authenticity in your kingdom, in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.